Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Dr. Dua, Dr. Rene Dua, is founder and chief medical officer of a company called Heal, H-E-A-L. It provides on-demand telemedicine as well as some in-home doctor house calls. And Dr. Dua joins us now. Dr. Dua, how will your company and companies like it deal with the distribution of the vaccine? Do you have orders in? Do you expect to be contacted? How does it all work? So, so, so far, thanks, first of all, for having me sure. on the show uh, first of all, it's it's kind of been an interesting rollout. You know, about a week ago, I was concerned that the logistics and, and the routing of getting this vaccine around were going to be very difficult. It seems that piece by piece, these items are falling into place. I was asked to fill out some paperwork on the CDC's website to apply for not just my medical teams, but also our patients that we serve um, to, to, to try to acquire enough vaccine for those those members of the team in each and every one of our markets. I'm waiting to hear back, but I've been consistently following up as well to see what's going on. I've also been seeing that the hospitals on which I'm on staff are trying as well to have a rollout process, and there have been glitches with accessibility to, you know, sign-up forms and email addresses and so that that's also been a very interesting perspective as well. It's, of course, as expected, rushed, but certainly hopefully will happen this month. So, Dr. Dua, you know, it seems like what we're hearing in terms of the rollout is uh, healthcare workers, uh, folks in uh, uh, retirement homes and, and, and so on to get it getting to those uh, critical populations initially and then out to the broader populations over time. What is your best guess as to when the average American out there will have access uh, to this vaccine? So the goal is to have 100 million people vaccinated in the first part of 2021. So I think that by the end of summer, the average person will be vaccinated. Now, keep in mind this vaccine is for those folks 16 and up. So we still have work to do for children. Is it fine to let children be sort of the, among the last to get this vaccine or should they be earlier? I think with children, we, we see a very interesting infectivity. So you've, of course, read in the news and seen in the news that children have died because of COVID. They've certainly been infected. They're certainly carrying and transmitting. But I think what we've also seen is the population suffering the most are those that are elderly and immunocompromised. And of course, my colleagues on front lines are being exposed um, in their efforts to keep people safe. So I would say those are definitely the right priorities. So, Dr. Dua, you know, in this country, at least, uh, there is a sizable percentage of the population that just doesn't feel comfortable with the old concept of receiving vaccines for, you know, the measles and mumps and other things. Um, How do we, as a society, you know, get those people to accept this vaccine and take this vaccine? It's such a challenging question. We, we deal with it in the routine vaccines, such as MMR, as you described. 
And so this concept of herd immunity, where enough people are vaccinated so that as a population we are all protected, is the most critical piece to our survivability. The amount of lives we have lost with COVID is uh, tragic is an understatement, right? So we all have to do our part. And even while we are being vaccinated piece by piece, you know, population type by population type, until we are all vaccinated effectively, we won't have herd immunity, which means we do need to wear masks. We do need to uh, physically separate. And these measures will go on and on until we are safe literally from each other at this point. Dr. Dua, would you feel comfortable if you had the vaccine going out in company or would you still be worried that you might be able to pass it on? So I, I plan, if, if I am able to get the vaccine, I plan to take the vaccine. I plan to vaccinate all of our medical teams and, and immunocompromised and elderly patients. And I will hope that as doing, in doing so, we are doing our part to protect our communities. And, and that's exactly our plan forward. Sorry, I should be a little more clear. What I meant was, would you be worried that you could still be passing on the virus you mean asymptomatically yeah well well so there are two vaccines that are required the first dose is reportedly effective but you want a second dose but yes i i would continue to physically separate and wear a mask not so much because i am worried about me transmitting though of course every vaccine takes time as you know to ramp up and build the immunity but additionally because others around me are not yet vaccinated and if i am carrying during that period of of immunity building i don't want to infect them dr renee dua thank you so much we really appreciate your thoughts and your expertise dr renee dua founder and chief medical officer of heal joining us on the phone from Los Angeles, giving us the latest on these vaccines, which are just beginning to roll out across the U.S. We're waiting for Moderna later this week to receive its FDA approval, uh, and that can join the Pfizer uh, vaccine in the marketplace as we build this vaccination population. Well, we got some weaker than expected retail sales this morning, suggesting once again that there is a lot of stress in the economy, particularly with the consumer. The question is, what can the folks in Congress do? What can the Federal Reserve do to kind of ease the pain? Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, also a former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg opinion contributor. Also, she's the author of a book entitled Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. What do you expect, Danielle? Thank you so much for joining us. What do you expect this Federal Reserve, which is bad for America, as per your book, what do you expect to hear from the Fed chairman uh, this afternoon? Well, it'll be interesting to see what he has to say. Uh, I I think he's finally going to get the stimulus that he wants. I I, I suspect that it's not near the, the price tag that he was hoping for. Uh, you know, the, the Fed wants to commit to capping longer maturity treasury yields, and it wants to buy longer maturity treasuries to hold those prices down. But the, those, those yields won't seem to come up enough for them to, to launch yield curve control. Um, so Bloomberg's Ira, Ira Jersey did some fantastic work. I hope everybody saw it. Uh, on what some of the possibilities would be in, in terms of just the, num- the amount of bonds that, that the Fed can buy. If they, were to, if they were to buy the entire tips market, which would be crazy, it would destroy the structure of the tips market, there's nearly $700 billion more that they could buy there. 
you know, that, that would continue to pump up the inflation narrative. Or they could go from, you know, the 7 to 20 area on the yield curve in terms of treasury maturities, and there's another $700 billion they can buy there. But again, I, I think what the Fed wants more than anything else, and we'll be looking to Janet Yellen to see if she doesn't push this, is, is, is the supply of longer maturity treasuries itself to increase, because those buckets are relatively small. What happens if we get stimulus, but it's nine hundred billion or below, so less than the, you know, the, the 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 trillions that Democrats wanted, but also you know not enough for states to to to, to get some of the pie. Well, and I think I think you hit the, the nail on the head there, Vani, because you've seen all of these job cut announcement announcements come out of whether it's Washington D.C. or San Francisco or New York around their transportation authorities. Uh, and, and that's just going to make a bad problem worse if you think about it, because so many of the lower income workers who can't work from home are going to have the, the means by which they transport themselves to work uh, cut that much more. So, you know, the Republicans have been very uh, articulate in saying this is not a stimulus package. We anticipate that the economy is going to accelerate because of the vaccine being distributed throughout the, throughout the country. So this is not stimulus. This is just pure relief. Well, you know, this is also a foot race between now and then and the damage that's going to be inflicted on the economy because of this spike in hospitalizations and fatalities. The question becomes one of is there stimulus necessary the minute Joe Biden takes office? Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Danielle. What do you think? It's got to be presumably on the top of his to-do list for those first 100 days. What do we know about Joe Biden and his administration and kind of what they're thinking about in terms of fiscal stimulus? Well, I certainly think that they would be huge advocates for getting as much aid to states and localities as possible. And if I'm in the Biden administration, it's difficult to do any planning, just as if just as it's difficult for most of us to, to plan out whether or not inflation are, is coming or not, because of these two senatorial runoff elections in Georgia. Mm. And that's how critical they've become. They will be the determinant of the size of the next stimulus package and its composition and how aggressive it can be. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to be a difficult winter. Danielle, what do you think is priced into this market, given that we've only gone up or sideways? We've barely gone down since March. Well, I think the market is, is certainly pricing in a, a, a best case scenario in terms of the, the, the economy being fully reopened by the time spring rolls around. That is where I feel the, the, these markets are priced for. A, a friend of mine, Philippa Dunn, did some Fabulous work looking at the Schiller uh, Cape price to earnings of the longer term price to earnings ratio on the S&P back to 1881. And right now, stocks are trading in the 98th percentile historically. So, you know, I have to say that, that, that the stock market right now is priced such that we are a fully open economy in, headed into Q2. Um, Danielle, what do you think of Janet Yellen as uh, Secretary of Treasury? Well, I, you know, I've been openly critical of Janet Yellen because in, in prior testimonies, in statements, she has, uh, she, she has spoken to the fact that she didn't really understand the makeup, the structure of the financial system and did not see the crisis coming as we were headed into the last crisis. Uh, you know, she's a labor economist by training, 
and I, I have my I have my my doubts as to whether when the repo overnight repo crisis cropped up at the end of last year, when that was what we were talking about, mm-hmm. I don't know how well equipped she is because of her background and and. It, I should say lack of background in the financial markets in being able to tackle something like that, especially because you have another pure academic running the New York Fed, John Williams. So I think somebody who was savvier to the structure of the markets, the plumbing of the financial system, which we've, we've discovered is so critical to the execution of quantitative easing or quantitative tightening and the ability for the Fed to normalize monetary policy, I would have preferred to have seen somebody who was much more familiar with the makeup of the markets. But of course, my, my opinion doesn't count because most of, most of the political world knows that she will be able to cross that aisle. Well, there's also Chris Waller, who has not gotten through Senate yet, so this particular meeting goes ahead without two governors. There's a vacant seat and Chris Waller, and uh, we'll see if that gets resolved as well next year. And uh, Danielle, I presume, you know, a Fed without all of its governors is not a fully functioning Fed either. Well, you do want to have uh, all of the voices around that table. I would say, Vani, though, that the the leadership structure, those at the very top of the Fed right now, are extremely familiar with one another. So I, I wouldn't. I, I'm I'm not too I'm not too particularly worried about that. One thing I would watch out for with today's meeting in particular is that we forget the last time the Fed had QE running that they put unemployment rate targets out there. And they had to continuously move the goalpost down further and further because they realized the markets could not be weaned off of QE. Uh, in fact, at the time, uh, Jay Powell himself said that QE had become habit-forming to the, to the markets. I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to put another target out there like the unemployment rate today that we, that we didn't see some dissenting voices there on that committee. All right, Danielle, thank you for that. Always uh, some sobering advice there from Danielle D. Martino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, coming to us from Dallas, Texas. Well, we've been talking about the consumer all year, really, but uh, this morning we got retail sales data that were a little bit less positive than we were anticipating. So advanced month over month, they were down 1.1%. Economists were looking for them to be just down 0.3%. The control group was down a half a percent. Economists were looking for that to be positive. Let's bring in somebody who handles consumers' money, their cash, and uh, through his bank allows them to keep that cash on deposit if they wish. Brendan Coughlin is Head of Consumer Banking at Citizens Bank and he's coming to us from Providence, Rhode Island today. So Brendan, what have you seen with the amount of savings in your bank right now and whether it's increasing or decreasing? Yeah, we've seen uh, very uh, healthy savings by the consumer. Uh, we're certainly not out of the woods yet uh, with the economy, and Q1 is uh, certainly going to be a bit rough uh, until the economy fully reopens. But the consumer has been very resilient uh, through all this, in fact, much better than expected. Savings are really piling up uh, through stimulus, and with the economy shutting down in general, spending, has, as you as you teased in the open, has been a little off. Uh, having said that, uh, what we're seeing is 
uh, a real recovery on both credit card spending and debit card spending. So debit card spending is actually up about 15% right now year over year on a dollar basis and flattish on units. So customers aren't going to the grocery store two times a week. They're consolidating that into one uh, one trip uh, and they're spending a little bit more. And credit cards um, have actually come all the way back up to slightly positive year over year. So we're seeing uh, consumer confidence come back a little bit in their behaviors around spending, which is certainly a good sign. Brendan, what are you seeing in terms of credit quality uh, out there right now? Yeah, I, I have been pleasantly surprised on credit quality. And as I said a second ago, we're certainly not out of the woods yet, uh, but we um, we do have uh, very positive indicators on a relative basis on credit. So at its worst, we had 8% of our portfolio in forbearance, which means uh, the customer's taking a break from making their payments. That has geared down to about 1.5%. So the vast majority of customers have left forbearance status at the same time, our delinquency rates have actually gone down, not up. And so as these customers have migrated back into repayment, the vast, vast majority are landing on their feet, uh, which is a very, very good sign. So the remainder of customers are going to transition off um, through December and into January. So we'll have to uh, help them make sure the, re- the remainder land on their feet. And certainly uh, some of the, the stimulus talks out there could really help uh, make sure that's the case. What kind of loans are being asked for, Brendan? Are companies that are looking for, you know, fresh or extended lines of credit still doing that? Or, you know, have they decided to just close their business? And what about mortgages? Yeah, so um, um, on the commercial side of the bank and with our small businesses, certainly we saw a lot of them draw down uh, at the height of uh, the anxiety in April and May. A lot of that has gone back away. Liquidity is very strong with our businesses, both in the mid-corporate and small business space. Uh, so that's kind of coming back to normal. Uh, we, on the consumer side, uh, we've seen uh, actually pretty significant loan demand uh, this year, and it's really led uh, by two spots. Of course, mortgage is booming. We're having a stellar year in uh, in mortgages. The market could hit $4 trillion this year in mortgage originations, uh, which is incredibly high, probably the largest year on record for mortgage originations, just given the speed of rate uh, drop that happened, and, and Citizens is doing quite well. Uh, um, in in the mortgage space, taking market share, We're, we we will potentially get close to 50 billion in mortgage originations uh, this year. So very very strong year. The other product that has stimulated a ton of demand is student loan refinancing. As rates drop, uh, a lot more customers have been placed in the money, if you will. So the rates offered today are much better than uh, what they have today, and they're refinancing and restructuring their debt for payment savings. And of course, refinancing your student loan debt or your mortgage is uh, in some ways a form of stimulus for the customer to put extra money in their pockets every month and be able to help stimulate more spending and and some of the savings that we've seen uh, customers accelerate. Brendan, talk to us about digital banking. I, I, for one, have really ramped up my digital banking game during this pandemic. I'm suspecting other people have as well. Do you expect that to be a a big trend going forward? Yeah, I do. Uh, Digital banking uh, has been a trend that's been increasing for so, uh, some time now, and this uh, the COVID period has has massively accelerated um, uh, digital banking activity. So our digital metrics are up uh, over 25% in a relatively short period of time. Our brick-and-mortar banking is down about the same amount, uh, and, and so what we're seeing is that customers are engaging with the digital uh, mobile app to do their transactional banking much more frequently. They still want to talk to humans when they have a big life event, 
that when they want to talk about retirement or their mortgage. So it's very, very important. Our brick-and-mortar strategy and our human interactions will be foundational to our, our strategy and the industry going forward. But digital banking is accelerating at quite a clip, which, which poses a lot of questions for retail banks. What should be the size of your brick-and-mortar network? Um, how, you know, do you have to upskill your colleagues to have them step up to more advice-based banking versus transactional banking as all that moves to a self-serve model? Wow. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Brendan Coughlin, head of consumer banking for Citizens Bank. It is based in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, giving us a sense of that growth, Vonnie, in the shift to uh, from bricks and mortars to digital. is just uh, fascinating, and it seems like it's going to be long-term. For sure, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens to all those HSBC branches that are closing down. Will other banks make a bid? But, you know, will there be any need if there's going to be such a shift from brick and mortar to digital? So what will become of that real estate? Yeah. Well. Exactly. Well, I, I know just, again, speaking for myself, I've stepped up and done a lot more <laughs> digital banking more than I did pre-pandemic. Well, big U.S. technology companies, think Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, they've been facing much higher levels of regulatory scrutiny here in the U.S. We have the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, looking at those big tech names. Now, the European Union it wants new powers to curb tech companies' dominance. To get some more color on this, we welcome Alex Webb, European technology and media columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us on the phone from London. Alex, thanks so much for joining us here. The, the European Union has long had a history of tightly monitoring U.S. technology companies. What are they looking to do now for some of these big tech giants? So there are two uh, proposals for regulation, which are called respectively the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. And, and one uh, will classify big companies, essentially the, the, the ones you can think of, um, as gatekeepers and will then subject them to particular rules which uh, will make it harder to do some acquisitions and protect uh, smaller companies that operate on their platforms. And the punishments that they can be imposed are uh, fines of up to 10% of revenue, annual revenue, and in the worst case scenario, forced divestments of businesses, which uh, is a very extreme scenario, that is. So it's sort of coming at it from all sides, if you like. I mean, will it be successful? How can the companies block some of this from happening? Well, so firstly, it's got to be passed. It's got to be passed by the European Parliament and the Council. Um, That's likely to take about a year, and then it will take another six months to come to effect. There is going to be a huge lobbying effort on the part of these companies. Um, it is not a question of really blocking the European Parliament uh, or the European Commission. It's a question of actually uh, just ensuring that you abide by the rules, and then the then there will be no um, impetus to actually force a breakup. You know, the way that these rules work is that. If you give uh, a regulator the power to break a company up, in an ideal world, they don't need to because the threat of the breakup is enough to change companies' behavior. And that is, you know, we have seen time and again instances of, of the, you know, big tech companies pursuing seemingly anti-competitive behavior. They're now being pursued for that in the U.S. as well as in Europe and Australia and elsewhere. And this is just giving the uh, European Commission more power and more tools to uh, punish the companies when they overstep the mark because clearly the deterrent hasn't been adequate up till now. So, Alex, I'm old enough to remember the European Union uh, really coming down on Microsoft about 25 years ago. And I think investors learned from that that, you know, the European Union, it's not that big a deal. It's a fine here. It's a fine there. It's not that big a deal. Why 
would this be any different? It just seems like the European Union is doesn't have much power beyond just leveling some fines. Well, I think that's exactly the problem. That, that previously they have concentrated um, on um, remedies which are, as you say, fines rather than behavioural remedies, which um, seek to change the way the companies, clues in the name, behave. And um, the U.S. has leaned historically a lot more on behavioural remedies of, of trying to change the uh, the way that those, um, those those companies go about their business. Um, now, if behavioural remedies in the extreme don't work, um, then you lean on structural remedies where you can force companies to divest their businesses. And um, that is something where um, the European Commission has, has been wary about taking actions in the past. This gives them, in extreme cases, the power to do it in the future. So the fine could now be up to 10% of revenue. Is that enough of a deterrent for the likes of Amazon, Facebook, Apple? I mean, other fines, they've been quite happy to pay and carry on with their business, but would a 10% of revenue fine really dent their balance sheet? So in and of itself, no. These companies average free cash flow of 19% of revenue each year. If um, they you know, break rules, then they could face a one-off fine of up to 10% of revenue or, um, you know, daily fines of, of 1% of revenue. And if they continue to, uh, to break uh, the rules, that's when the, the commission has said that they will consider um, forcing divestment to business. And that's when it starts to get, you know, the sort of the, the really starts to get really serious, essentially. And uh, that is something that inevitably these companies will want to avoid. Alex, you know, is there a sense across Europe, broadly defined, why there hasn't been more technology companies uh, kind of created across Europe? I mean, yes, we have a couple of uh, big, big ones like SAP and and so on and Ericsson. But just generally speaking, why the technology companies development uh, across Europe has been not nearly anywhere as it's been, say, the United States, even in just Silicon Valley? I mean, it's a very simple reason, really. There are any number of big factors. You know, the Silicon Valley, of course, has Stanford and, you know, concentration of venture capital and all that sort of thing. But also the U.S. just has one single addressable market that speaks the same language. You know, you can launch in the U.S. and you are immediately in front of 320 million people. Um, in Europe, you know, there are a bunch of different app stores um, for Apple. There are a bunch of different languages that are spoken. There are, you know... As much as it's in theory a single market, in practice it can be a little bit more complicated than that. It mm-hmm. gives American companies a huge advantage. And the companies that have proven successful are the ones from Europe that have scaled immediately into the U.S. Think about Spotify, the Swedish company, yeah. now the biggest music streaming company in the world. So that, I think, is the single advantage that is hard for the U.S. for the Europe to compete with. I'm sure the teams of lawyers at all these big companies are looking at all of the different options, including actually divesting parts of their business. Alex, do you know about any of these discussions or any of the parts of any of the businesses that might be up for discussion? Well, it's, it's unlikely that these companies are going to voluntarily divest businesses. There was a report in the journal earlier this year that there had been discussions at Google informally about perhaps selling part of their advertising business is business that places ads on third-party websites that you know would maybe address some of the concerns about an acquisition that Google did more than a decade ago which beefed up that business and in hindsight looks as though it probably shouldn't have been passed um, does it look as though Facebook is ever going to sell voluntarily WhatsApp or Instagram 
absolutely not. Uh, but there maybe are things around the edges which you know, might as a sign of goodwill or to take to defang some of the uh, no pun intended um, to defang some of the uh, att- attacks from from regulators that might be feasible. But I, nothing significant. So just real quickly, is there an expectation that this will pass, Alex? Yes, absolutely. There's huge um, political will behind this in Europe. Opposition perhaps from Ireland, unsurprisingly, given that uh, a lot of these companies have their European HQs there. But broadly speaking, um, this is something that uh, you know, there might be changes, and there will be changes over the course of the next year. But the thrust of it looks like it will get through European Parliament. And of course, as we know, the European Union antitrust chief, Margareta Vestager, is well-versed in all yes. of this language and well, well able to take on these companies. Alex, thank you for always keeping in, uh, in touch with us on what's going on with these major, major Silicon Valley companies. Alex Webb is European technology and media columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. But of course, uh, a lot of that has to do with the big American companies as well. As he said, they're all based in uh, Europe too. They have headquarters in Ireland and some of them in, in other parts of Europe as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.